Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and we've decided to talk a little more about Loper Bright because I think it's interesting if you follow administrative law and Supreme Court um, briefing uh, that certain things are going on here. One of the things going on here is is that Loper Bright has clients that they have to represent and they want to win. So their brief uh, says, sure, get rid of Chevron. We want to get rid of Chevron. But then it has the fallback that, look, at least in silence. It shouldn't apply because silence, there's always going to be silence. Congress can't talk about everything. It was kind of ridiculous in the original Chevron that they said silence might equal ambiguity. And and all the worries about that have proven out because many courts will go to ambiguity in 10 seconds because then they can solve the, their problem of getting the, the case right. Hey, it's ambiguous. Boom, Chevron. Boom, government wins. So, um, at, so they have a fallback position, but we have... I have been uh, reading or at least scanning because there is a plethora of them. The um, other amicus briefs are coming in. And one of the things when we write amicus is here is we want to say something differently or new so that it's just not a repetition for the court to read something. Um, and so uh, we've obviously, uh, Mark and I have gone through this, uh, the, the main brief, but, but we're also uh, scanning the other briefs. And I, I always... Um, Atlantic Legal, uh, Larry Ebner filed his amicus brief before the the main brief came out, which I always I always think is a is a bold move. And uh, and but then since that one was filed on Friday, they've just been coming in one after another. And each group has its uh, PLF has has one. um, And I just saw Tech Freedom had one. So there's I think there's like seven or eight by now. But one of the one of the things that's good about amicus briefs is that you can tell the court what you think the ideal state of the legal world is without worrying that you're going to hurt your client's position. And so I think one of the things that's interesting about these amicus briefs is that everyone brings into the, to the mix something that, uh, that couldn't be said by the main plaintiffs because either they, the main petitioners, because they didn't know it or they didn't have room, um, but that are, that are interesting um, items to bring up and for our one of you know uh, from from 20,000 feet we always look at well congress is giving away its power and the courts are allowing this power to be given to the executive and all the things we just talked about about why chevron's bad but there's one that affects real people and it ref- it, it, it 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 certainly hurt our clients in relentless and I and I say I know enough about the Loper Bright uh plaintiffs for the same reason um when the statute was passed, it, you know, it's it's in it's it's in the Magnuson Stevenson Act, and uh, it's B section uh, B eight fifty three B eight I think eight eighteen fifty three B eight. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is, it said the the fisheries can put observers on the boats, and up until that time, observers were paid. They were they had uh, they were people paid by the government, and then they were worried about. Hey, do we have statutory authority to put them on private property? Has that happened? And there might be all kinds of claims against it, but nobody opposed it. 
our clients, all the fishermen read that and said, look, in order for them to make sure too many fish aren't being taken or small fish aren't being taken and all the rest of it, there's this. Well, the fishermen didn't trust each other. Right, exactly. Right. Right. It's it's the tragedy of the commons. They all know it. Sometimes the environmental groups say, oh, these these guys, they don't want any any regulation. Well, a lot of them want to make sure somebody is being watched and, and that everyone's playing fair. And, and that's been my experience anyway. I haven't heard a lot of people say, oh, no, we can't have this. And so they'll grumble about the, the you know, the, the monitors uh, because there's a culture clash sometimes. But nobody, nobody opposed the statute. Nobody. Because you know what the statute didn't say? It didn't say, oh, and by the way, you're going to pay for it. And that would have caused a ruckus. And how do we know that? When the regulation came out, everybody on earth commented against it. There was overwhelming negative commentary. But who doesn't hear that? The Congress doesn't hear it. The administrators aren't going to lose their jobs. They're not going to have lost votes. So they can just take the comments, respond to the comments with whatever they want. As long as they respond, the regulation goes through. Yeah, they can do a lot of this, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm wadding up a piece of paper and throwing it in the trash. Right. And so but so the Congress didn't get the message. Now I have to straighten it back. Exactly. Out so, so you can read it. So you can read it. <laughs> but but the Congress didn't get the message here because that statute was never passed. So in addition to to throwing off the constitutional balance between the branches, it also disenfranchises the voter, the right to petition Congress, the right to say, hey, look, I want to get an input on what's going in to this law that's going to affect my industry. Well, you can't do it unless you know what's in the statute. That's why we have them print it. And Gorsuch in Buffington puts his finger on this. And he says that, you know, who's not hurt? Large, powerful interests with a lot of money because they're going to hire the lawyers and the lobbyists to work the regulations and work the administrative agencies. And may, and I think he even mentions administrative capture. Um, he's saying that, so it, it does, if you're interested in equality and, and uh, amongst all the various Americans affecting the law, Chevron really hurts that because you don't get to stop anything in Congress because you don't know what's going to happen to you just from uh, reading the statute because no one read uh, B8 and and thought that these monitors were going to be paid for observers they were called then observers were going to be paid for by the industry and that came almost 20 years later just because an administrative agency wanted to and I really think and I, I think Paul Clement has has been very solid on this the facts of how this happened show that Chevron's not only upending all of the uh, balance between the branches it's also disenfranchising the 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 citizen. Well, and this statute was written in what, 1975, 76, something like that? 1990 came the monitors. Okay. The observers. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say it was pre-Chevron, but I guess the monitors part wasn't. Right. That's that's true. Came in 1990 was the amendment. Okay. Well, I I wanted to circle back to something else that that you said, uh, John, in in terms of uh, ambiguity and silence, because I thought that there were some some nice uh, historical references uh, in this brief that were... Uh, I, I can't say that they were new to me, but I haven't seen them used in the Chevron context uh, uh, you know, very often or, or regularly. And I think that they absolutely uh, deserve to be brought up in this context. And that is, you know, so what did the framers think about ambiguity? And, uh, and, and the, the brief quotes James Madison saying all, and this is from the Federalist Papers, Federalist number 37, all new laws are more or less obscure and equivocal as no language is so copious as to supply words and phrases for every complex idea or so correct 
as not to indulge many equivocally denoting different ideas. Then it also quotes uh, a different Federalist paper written by Alexander Hamilton. This is from Federalist 78, uh, saying that uh, the power to ascertain the meaning of not only the Constitution, but also any particular act proceeding from the legislative body must belong to the judges alone. And from a different part of that same paper, the interpretation of the laws is the proper and peculiar province of the courts. And so it's not as though the framer, like this idea of statutory ambiguity is is new in the you know, 20th century or something like that. This idea has been known from the beginning. And we have both Madison and Hamilton in the Federalist Papers saying when there's ambiguity, that is the, that is the job of the courts uh, to do that. And of course, Marbury v. Madison is the precedent that, uh, that, that sort of set that once and for all, that it was the province of the, of the courts uh, to say what the law is. And that's why I thought it was interesting here that, uh, that, uh, that the brief quotes Cass Sunstein, who, who taught me administrative law mm-hmm. and, and was the, the head of OIRA in the Obama administration, as saying that Chevron is the counter Marbury for the administrative state, which I thought was a pretty pithy and accurate description of, of Chevron, but just also shows how, how sort of out of touch Chevron is, that it would be the reverse of Marbury v. Madison, which in some law schools is probably the first case that law students ever hear about. I think that's right. And um, I do think that, um, I, I do think that uh, Sunstein is very candid about that. And he's, he's not, you know, he's not an administrative state Delenda Est guy, but he is, he does play that pretty straightforwardly um, about what, what is going on there. And I, and I think every, everyone sees it. The real question is, do you want the executive to have this power or not? And for, for too long, a lot of people have wanted it. Um, and, and so it's just, it's just, traveled on with all this criticism, but nobody doing anything about it. Yeah, no, that's right. It, it, it has. And, uh, and, you know, I think that the, the weight of the lower courts is making a difference here. And I think that there was, I think it was Justice Gorsuch had, had said that, you know, Chevron was, you know, it had already died or whatever. And yeah. <laughs> boy, I don't think I've ever seen something the court said earn immediate sort of. Uh, well, uh, not all that. All the petitions in Loper Bright, the, the, the amicus briefs in support of the petition, every one of them quoted Gorsuch and told him he was wrong. In fact, our footnote quoted him and then said, even Homer nods. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, you know, it's it was it's funny then to see in the merits brief all of these lower you know, all the times when Chevron's being used by the lower courts, all the times when it's being criticized uh, by, uh, by by the good guys in the lower courts, if I can put it that way, uh, is is heartening because I, I do think that there's been a consensus reached among those who are fond of the Constitution that this precedent has to go. This is not something that can be uh, cons- it's not consistent with the separation of powers, with the with the 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 fact that lawmaking needs to happen in Article One. It's not consistent with the role of the judiciary. Uh, it's really it's not just a thorn in the side of our constitutional system. Uh, it's it's really overturning our constitutional system in many ways. Right. And there's one last thing. You know, Paul uh, he says in there that Chevron was a six person court and it was severely denuded in this one i think it'll be an eight person court and just i think that jackson will be out i think she's going to stay out of it so interesting we'll, we'll see what happens but it's a wonderful brief if you have any interest go take a look at it
Thanks for being with us on this. We'll be back with one more segment right after this. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and I hope you were with us for our Chevron Palooza. <laughs> uh, but uh, but now we're going to turn to to another uh, fun topic, John. Yeah. So uh, we have an in Missouri v. Biden. We've talked about um, how the government has uh, thrown voices it didn't like off social media, and I, I think we've been over that quite a bit. But this week, um, an unusual thing happened, and I thought we'd talk about it because uh, I have never opposed a motion to consolidate in all my time as an attorney. Um, and so I did this week on behalf of what we call the opposing plaintiffs, um, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Koldorf, Aaron Carity, and Jill Hines in, Ken- uh, in um, Missouri v. Biden, the states took no position. So Louisiana and Missouri took no position. Uh, Jim Hoft, who's the other individual, um, took no position. A- and what were they taking no position on? Well, um, the Children's Defense Fund, which is an organization run by RFK Jr., Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. Right. Not was, the one that the Redskins Stadium is named after. Right, exactly. So this is this is the younger uh, Kennedy who's running for president. And that makes a big difference. So he here's here's what happened there. So RFK has had a big problem with social Jr. media. Junior has had has had, exactly <laughs> has had has had a big problem with social media um, uh, interference from the government, and he's been a big voice on this. So so um, that, we have no problem with that, obviously. And, but here's here's the problem. So on April first, they make the motion to uh, consolidate. So first, they tried to intervene. So he he tried to intervene in our case, sort of jump on the bus after it was moving. And uh, the judge turned that down. So then he filed a case with the same defendants and a class action and all this stuff in the same court. And then he moved to consolidate. And so on April 1st, he makes this move to consolidate. On April 19th, he announces he's going to run for president of the United States. And uh, the judge stays all this motion to consolidate till he got the preliminary injunction. Most people listen here know that he granted that preliminary injunction. And now we are trying to get on July 4th, on July 4th. And now we are trying to go and get um, discovery for the merits of the case, not for the preliminary, but for the final. And so we're going to be deposing people and asking questions and moving this case forward. We're trying to get an answer out of the government. The government has never answered the complaint. There's a lot of things that have to be done. And um, and, and a short time frame. And, to and, do and, and, RF, and RFK Jr. has a, a later filed case with a um, complaint that also has to be answered and and um, and he's running for president. And so how does this how does this affect anyone in a case? Well, we're we're a nonprofit and and uh, nonpolitical and and um, our clients got into this to protect everybody's right to free speech. And this even the judge has said this is uh, the most um, 
the largest uh, attack on free speech maybe in the in the country's history. Um, and certainly a number of people affected. I agree with that. We can argue about you know the Palmer raids or something, but but number of people affected. That's probably true. And um, you don't want uh, a political campaign interjected in your case. So we opposed it for both because of delay, um, but also because you can't have um, any any um, buddy out there with a political agenda inserting themselves in your case. That is already very difficult. You're against the largest uh, litigator in the country. You have all these um, uh, headwinds that they're going to bring up as, you know, with mootness and, and standing and all these other other things that they're going to bring up that you have to get over and that so far we have gotten over. And um, so this is no animus to RFK Jr. He, 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 is, he, is, he is bashing the government for exactly the sort of things that we're bashing the government for. They shouldn't have been doing this. And he has his own case and he can vindicate it in his own case. I, I want to be a little bit careful in, in saying this, John, and you may disagree right. with me and that's fine uh, You know, if, if you do, but we've been very careful in selecting the plaintiffs that we've represented throughout all of our COVID litigation. And we've been very careful to, to uh, pick folks who have been, for example, standing up for principles of natural immunity and and sort of other have made truthful claims and claims that have later been freedom of choice, freedom of choice and, and natural immunity. And and uh, and as Martin Koldor, for example, got kicked off of Twitter for saying it, it makes no more sense to say that everyone has to be uh, vaccinated than to say that no one has to be uh, vaccinated. And that's I'll just put it this way. That is not the, the position of RFK Jr. They've, they've had a more maybe I will say uh, aggressively anti-vaccination position than uh, our clients have. Natural immunity is not where they've been drawing the line. And I think one of the reasons we drew the line there in, in our other COVID cases, but to some extent here as well, is because it's an easier line to defend. And that's not to say the First Amendment doesn't cover untruthful speech. It does. We have some other cases on that uh, on that topic. Right. But that it makes the case more difficult if you draw the line in a different place. Yeah. And, and also... Um... It makes it makes it more difficult when you're running a presidential campaign. You know, I in this brief, I cite to a, uh, a page six New York Post um, article that that is pretty much the circus of political campaigns. Now, it happened RFK Jr. could happen to anyone. There's always there's always strange folks hanging around political campaigns. And so um, we just I don't think that that is something that we want to interject into um into uh, a serious this is a, a serious case brought for serious purposes by serious people and and rfk jr has other things he wants to do besides vindicate this case he's got a lot on his plate and who knows what those impulses are going to be well and there's so, always a risk that someone will not focus primarily on the substance of the case but will focus on who one of the parties in the case is and that that could even subconsciously shade the judge's view of the issues uh, in the case. And we just don't don't need that to happen. Right. And I, I want to read a little portion of what I wrote here, which was that, look, n um, none of the opposing plaintiffs have personal animus against those moving for consolidation. Many of them admire it. Uh, but to do so would inevitably shift this case in the public mind and that of the press from the focus on the law, the facts, and the novel blend of both, to the political interests of those for and against presidential candidate challenging a, pre a presidential candidate of his own party 
as both his father and his uncle famously did before him. So the point is that what you have here is a very, very famous man from the most famous political family in the country doing something that both his and people say, well, Robert waited till Linda Johnson dropped out. But come on, he was a stalking horse. It was the same sort of thing. So I, I do think that this has so many echoes in history. It has so many, so many cross currents of politics that you don't want it when you've been fighting a year <laughs> to get these various issues about free speech and standing and injunction before the court to be taken seriously. And we already know, obviously, the preliminary injunction has its uh, critics, right? And they'll grab, they'll, they'll grab anything at hand to say that, oh, this is bad or, or you know, this, is, this is, is the wrong way to go. And or, no... or you're just doing this to harm the Biden administration right. because that's in RFK's interests right. as an opponent or exactly. something like that. Exactly. And we, uh, I, I'm, I, I don't want to talk about my, our clients' political allegiances, but they are not um, uniformly against one party or another. Let's put it that way. Um, and so I, I do think that I, I do think that this shouldn't be looked upon as a hostile act to RFK Jr. or anything he's or, doing. Or his attorneys. Or his attorneys, exactly. But when you have um, such a high stakes litigation, uh, you have to you sometimes have to make motions that from the outside look like, oh, this is this is uh, uh, dissension in the ranks, dissension or, in the ranks. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that. And but there's one other thing we mentioned in this, which I, I th- I'd like to I'd like to talk about on the show, which is that um, you have the attorney general of Louisiana. You have the attorney general of Missouri. Um, the attorney general of Missouri overturned because Eric Schmidt went to the Senate. Right. And then you have right, um, right. The new attorney general of Missouri hasn't been involved in the case as long as NCLA has. Right. And but he's he's still there. Right. And then sure. Jim Hoff, who's with Gateway Pundit, very controversialist guy. Right. He likes to do all this stuff. And yet everybody's worked together perfectly. There's never been the slightest, the slightest um, fight amongst the lawyers. Uh, there's never been fights over who's going to who's going to take this deposition or it. And I've been in a lot of this high stakes litigation with a lot of plaintiffs and big egos. And the fact that everyone's worked so smoothly together, the, even for the government, right? The government has never gotten mixed messages where one one plaintiff says, oh, that's OK. And the other plaintiff says no. And so they they've just wasted their time trying to negotiate something. So even for the government and for us, you have high stakes litigation with with uh, what I think looking from what i've seen of all these people just really fine lawyers and, and the main lawyer john sauer went from <laughs> representing missouri to representing louisiana which is which seamlessly seamlessly, seamlessly exactly and and uh if you don't practice law you don't know what a big deal that is but to me it's something to really be preserved and i hope the court recognizes that but i did want to um, talk about this this uh, consolidation because what happens in a consolidation? The cases uh, get joined together and they move together, and so all the depositions, you, you know, each lawyer gets to do the same thing. Um, the questions asked in interrogatories, the whole thing, everything you do, the cases are joined together almost as if it was one case filed. Well, you almost have to master the facts of this other case that hasn't been involved at all up to this point either, right? I mean, so right. there's and an you, additional burden there. And you don't know what motions they're going to make or what what's going to happen. So I, um, yeah, so I, I think it's an interesting brief. I, As I said, I have never opposed a motion to consolidate before. It's always made uh, it's usually made good sense, but I've never had somebody announced for president 
within 20 days of making a motion to consolidate and being uh, in every newspaper in the world and and, uh, and be from a famous political family that can um, sort of uh, mask in the public mind what the case is really about. So I did want to talk about that a little bit. I find it an interesting brief. If you want to look at it, it's on our website. and NCLALegal.org. NCLALegal.org. And we will see you next time. And uh, and perhaps we, we may have something to talk about in Loper Bright again. Chances are. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Administrative Static.